few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com slash Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. I didn't know that was the case when I was coming in. It was like, I thought I was signing up just to do real estate. And I've just gotten a PhD the last five years about family business, which I not only did I not know anything about really in terms of the, the nuts and bolts of it, but also I almost didn't have any desire. I, I, you know, as you could tell by my track, I didn't want to come home. I, I wasn't interested in the type of business. On this episode, I'm speaking with Scott Arnaldi, founder of Triton Real Estate Partners. Triton pursues flexible investment strategies that involve a high level of repositioning or development. As founding partner, Scott drives the strategic goals of the company with a focus on investment thesis identification as well as execution oversight. Since its founding, TREP has acquired or developed over 400 million of properties across a variety of product types. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump on in. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. So I want to start with your with your upbringing, and and I know that you're a Houston guy through and through. So I want to hear a little bit more about what you were like as a kid and what sort of things you you got into as a youngster. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm obviously born and raised in Houston. My grandfather was the one who kind of immigrated on my dad's side from Minnesota. So we've always had like strong ties to the Midwest and Minnesota, but and spent summers kind of going up there to lake houses and kind of embrace that whole Midwest lake life. But my dad was born and raised in, in Houston. My parents, my my mom was actually from kind of West Texas and her her dad was in the oil and gas business. And so she's got the thicker draw. <laughs> but, you know, obviously born here, you know, in great childhood, split parents, divorced when I was eight or nine. So I've always had kind of a series of, of step siblings uh, in my life. My dad's been married to quite, uh, unfortunately quite a few times, but it's it's kind of we joke like a big modern family. We kind of all do Thanksgiving together and somehow it all works. But, you know, grew up kind of in town in Houston, inside the loop, as they say here. So kind of infill Houston, if you will. Had a just kind of a more uh, idyllic upbringing, you know, in the sports and was kind of always into some entrepreneurial thing. I remember when I was like 11 years old, started a lawn care business with a buddy of mine and had actually like, I think like 20 clients. And then unfortunately I was, uh, when I was like 11 years old, was in a pretty bad hunting accident. Oh man. Where I took a, uh, uh, like a point blank 20 gauge shot to the chest. No way. And so, yeah. And so like that, that kind of, I mean, definitely in terms of like big life events, obviously that's a big one. I almost was very near death and was in the hospital for, uh, almost six weeks. And, and so I was in like fourth or fifth grade at the time you don't ever know like what, what kind of impact that really has on you at the end of the day, but I'm sure it has a a big one just in terms of, you know, some perspective or something like that. But, Mm. you know, always kind of had a bend towards 
towards I'd say like business or entrepreneurial you know things and, and thinking through like different business concepts and of course that would then led me to uh, to go to TCU. I thought I wanted to go out of state, but ended up going to TCU, and that's where I kind of fostered the uh, entrepreneurial gene, if you will. Okay, and and I think that you were mentioning to me earlier that uh, your grandfather had a really pretty profound impact on you as a as a scientist and a tinkerer. I think you put it. What sort of things did he show you as you were growing up? Yeah, he was. Uh, that's that's my dad's dad, and and he's the one I mentioned that came down from Minnesota. He was kind of this almost legend in our our family. He you know graduated. Now it was a different time. It was like the twenties, right? But he graduated college when he was like you know eighteen, and has all these kind of folklore stories about you know Charles Lindbergh kind of crashed in his hometown and <laughs> he freed him out of the plane. And so he was kind of always this this big character in our lives, and and he was really good about spending a lot of time with us and we'd see him almost weekly. And, and he was the founder of our, our, what is now our family business, which I've kind of spun out this, this real estate, you know, company within it. But he, you know, he was a, a chemical engineer by trade. And so when he moved to, to Houston, it was obviously for the oil and gas industry and opportunity. Just it was, it had a lot more industrial businesses down here at that time. And so he had like 52 patents to his name and he was always trying out different things. And, you know, the last business he founded, he did when he was 80 years old, which is just kind of amazing. It's wow. like, I hope I can live up to that mm. standard, but he never, I think, viewed it necessarily as, as work. He was just always kind of an entrepreneur. And he, and so he, he was constantly just tinkering as, like you said, it's the best word I can come up with. And like, I remember when, when I used to work out at the factory, his factory on summers, you know, driving a forklift, there was always this big just contraption in the corner. And I'd say, what is that? And one of the factory guys was like, oh, that's when Roman, who's, who's my grandfather's name, tried to invent outdoor air conditioning. <laughs> and it's like, what? Like, and it just looked like a, <laughs> essentially like a giant refrigerator door. And I was like, well, that doesn't look like it's going to work. But things like that, he would always just kind of spend, spend his own money that he was making through business on scientific pursuits, really. And so he was always... Uh, with us as kids showing us like I remember we've got a place in, in Brenham a, a kind of a farm summer house that that he bought you know it was like 100 acres in 1950 and so we'd go out there this double wide trailer at the time and and he like had a barn where he was he essentially was tinkering with cattle and so he he ended up inventing his own cattle breed by crossbreeding I'm going to screw up the names, but I think it was a uh, Bray Lair is, is the cow that he ended up kind of like inventing, but we'd be out there at the barn and he'd have all these things, right? Tools and chemicals. And, and one time he kind of showed us if you put, you know, you fill up a balloon with, I can't remember, it was like helium or oxygen. And then you drop some, some of these little pebbles that were another chemical. And then we put it out on the, uh, in the grass and then, but on top of a piece of newspaper and then, you know, you light a corner of the newspaper. And as the flame got to the balloon, I mean, it made to this day, like it's definitely the loudest, like just dry explosion that I've ever it, like <laughs> shook the earth type of thing. And as like a twelve year old, I just thought it was pretty much the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah, he was just always doing things like that. I mean, he spent summers up at up at, in Minnesota because he hated the the Texas heat. So we'd go up there and he'd teach us about boats. And so that like curiosity is that's definitely something I. I I try to strive to have at least on some level that that he had. Mm. And you alluded to this earlier, but you ended up 
as you got a bit older, you ended up heading out to TCU for finance and entrepreneurship. But I'm, I'm curious if your parents had any impact on that decision. I think at one point when we were chatting briefly, you mentioned that you were the uh, the Wrangler jeans guy. <laughs> and I was I was just kind of laughing at that because I think you were mentioning a few other schools you you got into as well, but you ended up going to uh, to TCU. What was the story there? Yeah, I mean it's funny you say that I I you know now I'm old enough to start knowing other people that have kids in high school. Like two days ago I got this Christmas card. It was like three guys, you know, sons that a, a, a good friend of ours and, and they're all the same high school I was at. And like somehow the style, it seems like has not changed in like the 20 years <laughs> that like, how is the, you know, the whole like Texas long hair, frat boy looking swoop with the, uh, you know, the, the Wrangler jeans is like still a current fashion at, at, at Texas high school. Mm. A good laugh about Texas it. Texas forever, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's just like rinse and repeat, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I, it, yeah, obviously being brought up in Texas, I mean, my the, the good thing my dad and, and was fortunately able to do was travel a lot. so. I actually thought, you know, I wanted to go out of state. So I, I applied to TCU as kind of a, a backup school. I shouldn't say backup, but like a safe, safe bet. And then I applied, you know, University of Miami and Florida and USC and Indiana University. And I, I thought I really wanted to get out and kind of <laughs> spread my wings a little bit. But I ended up just, you know, all my buddies end up going to TCU and it's nice and comfortable and you visit you know, University of Miami, and you can tell how different things are. And I just went with what was safe and comfortable. And having said that, like the education I got through the business school at TCU, I've always thought was just really above the above average, if that's the right way to put it. Mm. But and I just felt felt when I graduated, I was so far ahead of a lot of my peers. And I was, you know, the first job I got was at Goldman, and so a lot of the guys I was working with were from much more perceived prestigious schools, but the education I got, and especially, you know, the entrepreneurship program at TCU is essentially just a bunch of guys that started businesses that would teach the class. And so like they kind of start by throwing away the textbook yeah, and giving you some book that had an impact on them. And, and kind of the, always the lesson was you, you never know what's going to come at you. And when you're starting a business, but you know, it, it's like, here's how I screwed up. And, and that was yeah. obviously pretty impactful. And I heard that there was a there's a specific story you have that involves a red box and your college campus. What was that all about? <laughs> yeah, so I graduated of five, right? So this is like 2002 or three. But I was I don't even remember exactly how I found this, but I think it was some sort of newspaper that you know the back had uh, different classifieds essentially, and there was a a business that where you could buy those machines. It was pre-Redbox, but you, there was a manufacturer of these machines. And so I, I, w- I actually went and pitched my, my, uh, the board of my, our family business that I think it was, a, you know, it was tens of thousands of dollars to buy one of these machines. And I was going to get a, a decal and, and I ended up calling it Frog Flicks for obviously the TC Horn Frogs <laughs> and made it purple. And then I went and had to actually pitch the TCU. I mean, I had to go meet with the administration and get them to approve me putting this in the student commons. And there was just a huge lesson. I mean, I was the guy that had to set up the payment processing software and manage inventory and like literally buy DVDs and sometimes scramble to go to Best Buy to get the newest thing. And Mm. it was a huge lesson. I mean, it was obviously a a good idea. I'm glad I didn't like, you know, try to go big with it because I wouldn't want to be Redbox today competing with the likes of Netflix and streaming and all that. But 
it, it didn't end up going, it was like fine, but the big problem that I didn't underwrite my business plan, which is, you know, the point, right? You can never, a business plan is just a business plan. It's just a projection and you, you don't know what reality might bring. You just have to mm-hmm. kind of do your best guess. But, you know, a school year, like a student year, especially in college, as you know, is like the, t- the amount of days that people are there is actually quite few in a calendar year. And so, you know, you factor in fall break, spring break, winter break, summer break. And so what was happening is when it was, when school was in session, I was actually making money, but then they'd leave, right? For two weeks and you got to manage them, you got to bring in the newest movies. Well, I don't have revenue. And so I'd be shelling out money to get the newest DVDs, mm-hmm. you know? And so there was inventory management lessons learned there. And then of course, in summer, it would like, you know, your population would go to like a 10th. Yeah. And so it was an interesting, like, you know, lesson of like, you think starting a business is all sexy and you're your own boss, but then like, you know, you got to do the QuickBooks and the inventory management and everything else. But it was a, a really good experience. If anything, it was like, you know, almost like the best tuition of, of any thing I did in college. And I guess looking ahead to, to early career years, I'll call them, you ended up getting an interview with Goldman Sachs. Uh, you mentioned that briefly earlier. What was that first professional level experience like coming out of TCU? Yeah, when I graduated, all I knew is I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to go to Houston. And that's when I was really kind of like, I want to get out. And mm. I, remember I tried to apply to jobs in Argentina. And they're like, where's TCU? I've never heard of you know Spanish. I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> 70%. And I'm like, okay, that's not going to work. So I just said, I'm going to move to Dallas Blind. And at the time, I, I kind of wanted to do something in finance or maybe something entrepreneurship. I mean, I feel like, you know, the tech world kind of had exploded in 01 and 02. And so mm-hmm. the VC thing, I don't think was quite as like prevalent. Maybe in today, I would think about that. But I ended up just moving to Dallas Blind and, and ended up through a, a recruiter getting this interview at Goldman Sachs, which at the time I said, I don't really care what they want me to do. If I can put Goldman Sachs on my resume, I can I can kind of go move anywhere from there. And so I ended up getting this interview with their their real estate group. And I had very little interest in real estate at that time and, and, and had never really been exposed to it. But it sounded interesting. And it was kind of this mixture of you know finance and design elements and construction, which is always fun. And and but they were doing, you know, these big high-flying multi-billion dollar, you know, portfolios. And it was 2005 and six, right? So it was like starting to be the the big run-up. But Ended up taking the job, of course, and and then the rest is kind of history in terms of like me falling in love with with real estate. But it was a an environment where you had to really work hard. You're you know you think you're getting paid well, but then you later break it down by hour, and you're like, wow, I was getting really not paid very well. Mm. But you know, it's the whole kind of like investment banker, but not it wasn't investment banking, obviously, but it was that similar culture and similar vibe. Yeah, the, I imagine it's kind of like a grinded out long hours. Learn a lot, but you're at the office all the time. Yeah, exactly. Hey, listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com slash blueprints. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint.
So you did about two and a half years there, I believe. And then you ended up visiting San Francisco and, and something came from San Francisco. Yeah. So I, I visit my brother, right? And then, and then I'm like, I just fell in love. I mean, I'm a fan of the outdoors and cycling and, you know, anything kind of active. And I go out there, I'm like, wait a minute, you can like have a successful career. It's like almost gives you everything you want out of a mountain town. Beautiful. And the weather's great. And, and I was like, I got to move here. And so that's when I threw my resume. Uh, I got back to Dallas, you know, I was dating a girl at the time, my kind of college sweetheart. And we got to move to San Francisco. And so fortunately at that time, it was like 2007, things were still hot. I got a couple of offers and and uh, moved out to San Francisco. Like, I mean, and, you know, the funny image I think I probably gave to you before was, you know, Chevy Tahoe, windows down, white lab, you know, head out the door, my, my college dog at the time, cruising out to San Francisco, you know, with the, the luggage on the top rack. And like all those things are just incredibly hard concepts in, in San Francisco. Even like having a Chevy Tahoe, you may as well be driving like a, a semi truck. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like you can't park it anywhere. People hate it. They view it as a gas guzzler. And so, like, that lasted like, I don't know, it was like, a, it was kind of a surreal moment. But like, probably like a little over a year in, I, I put up my Tahoe for sale, but I couldn't put it up in California, right? Because like nobody wants it. So I ended up putting it up on Craigslist and like, you know, the adjacent states, like Nevada. I don't think I went even on to like Oklahoma and this like recent college grad like says, like, yeah, I'll do it. And, it's like, I'll bring a cashier's check. And he lands at San Francisco. You know, it's a long flight. And I'm like eating at a sushi restaurant. And, I, and my car was parked like two blocks away. And he's like, hey, I just landed. I'm like, all right, meet me at this restaurant. And I like, get up from the sushi dinner with all my buddies and like walk outside. And he like hands me this big cashier's check. And I like take the title out and just like sign it on the back. And the rest <laughs> was like, see you later, Tahoe. Like that, that was weird. And unfortunately, I kept the dog. But as I started traveling a lot with work, my brother kind of ended up helping out there too. But yeah, San Francisco was great. It's a great city. So you started working for a company called Stockbridge. And, and that, was, that was kind of the, the, I guess, the middle ground between Goldman and, and what you're doing today. What was that stop in your career like? And what, what parts of the country did you end up traveling to? Yeah, so I, I, the, the concept there was if I could join a small private equity group, you know, private equity being the people that that raise capital to try and you know buy the the real estate or partner with people, and and they're like, you know, you're not as close to the pavement, so to speak, the boots on the ground, but you're working a lot with those people. And Goldman was doing one step above that, much larger portfolio transaction. So, and then the other part was I thought if I wanted to do something entrepreneurial and like really try to like sprint instead of um, you know slowly climb a ladder, how do I do that? And I was like, I got to get with a small shop. So. Stockbridge was that. It was like 25 people maybe when I joined it. Big growth mode. They were hiring a lot of like senior guys to raise a lot of capital. And at the time, you know, I'm an associate, right? So like the deals I was working on were, were I was in a kind of a support role, but but doing a lot of the analytics and and uh, just helping oversee the deal. So I everything from San Francisco office developments. We did a large, a very large kind of high profile, high profile Vegas casino. There was a big land play in, in San Francisco called Treasure Island that I worked on like some central Valley, California housing land, where we were essentially, that was part of the, the, the housing boom obviously didn't work out too well, but, you know, flying around and, and just working on as many things as I possibly could to get as much exposure. And at that point I was then getting a lot of exposure to like the development side and developers Mm -hmm. and 
the design and sitting in on some architect meetings. And like, that's when I really started to get kind of a knack for like, man, that, that seems kind of fun and cool where you're putting together teams of people to like execute on a vision. And it's a little bit more creative and, you know, definitely more entrepreneurial and, and, you know, Stockbridge, you know, ended up, I had a big assignment that I did after 2009 that I would say that kind of got me noticed in the firm just because it was a, a big assignment, but with a small team. And so you got to obviously rub shoulders with all the senior guys that way. And after that assignment, 2010, you know, I'm like, again, like the only Texas guy in the office, you know, everyone else is from either the West or the East coast and, you know, Texas at that time and in the recovery was looking pretty attractive. I mean, you know, Houston was doing super well and just Texas as a whole from a fundamentals and economy and job growth and population growth has always been kind of off the charts, Austin, Dallas, Houston, kind of being the, mm-hmm. the trifecta there. And of course, our clients want to be there. And when we go pitch, when, when the senior guys were pitching, they're like, who can help us acquire assets in, in, in Texas? And was, I was relatively young at the time, but that was the point, right? That's why you're in a small firm. Like, hey, Scott, you know, you're from Texas. Why don't you be like the head of acquisitions for Texas? And I was like, absolutely. Like, I'll do that. I'm like, well, one thing, do you mind moving to Chicago? because we just started an office there. We kind of want to grow it out. And at the time, you know, I was single then things ended up working out with the college sweetheart. I'm as about as flexible as a lifestyle as, as one can get, you know, I'm renting an apartment single and willing to travel. And at that point it was kind of like Chicago seems like a cool town, which ironically enough, my, like one of my really good friends in, from college, my roommate was like, when we were graduating and we were talking about moving places, he said, why don't we move to Chicago? It seems like a cool town. And I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> like, you know how freaking cold Chicago is? Like, that's going to be terrible. And I just like shut it down right away. And, and I ended up moving there, as you know. And like, that's where I spent six years. I mean, absolutely fell in love with the town. Huge, huge fan of Chicago. But that's kind of the full circle of, of what ended up bringing me back home a lot. And then, then all of a sudden, I'm I'm coming back to Texas, like you know, on a weekly basis. Yeah, and and I think that was by around 2014 or so. You you started to transition back into or into the Triton world, the ecosystem again, and you loosely started what is today known as Triton Real Estate. But what was that transition, or what was that spark that got you going back in that direction? Yeah, dumb luck, pretty much. But you know, <laughs> I, I I was flying back as I mentioned, like essentially coming to find opportunities to buy, people to partner with. How do I put out money? And it was a ton of fun. I mean, at the time, I was enjoying traveling, right? You're on a plane and you get to hang out with people and entertain and kind of, quote, deal make. And, and as I was doing that, of course, when I come to Houston, I just stay with my parents. I mean, at that point, between San Francisco and Chicago, I wasn't, I wasn't coming home a ton, but it was great that now I was coming home you know, at least once a month. And so I'd stay with my dad or my, my uh, mom and I was trying at the time to get Stockbridge to, to, to pursue this industrial warehouse strategy. And, and at Stockbridge, I was kind of a generalist. I was, but I was, I'd say my specialty were kind of the big four food groups, as we say in the industry, which is multifamily, retail, office, or warehouses, or industrial. And so there was this industrial strategy. And Houston, because of its oil and gas roots, has this kind of uh, a little bit more esoteric, but unique or niche market around just smaller buildings that are catered towards people with heavier equipment. And I'll leave it at that because mm-hmm. otherwise I'll put everybody to sleep on your, your, your fans will go to sleep. <laughs> but I tend to lamenting to my dad over a whiskey and, and telling him that I can't believe they don't want to do it. Cause it just seems so good. And he, he kind of mentions, well, you know, 
your grandfather bought seven acres of land in, in Northwest Houston a long time ago, and we've never done anything with it. Should we do something with it? And I'm like, wait a minute, we own land? You know, I've been in real estate for like eight years, nine years at this point. Like, I, you're just mentioning this to me. It was kind of this like, you know, you want to knock them over the head moment, especially when it's land, because land just is an expense. You know, there's no income with land. And so we, we approached somebody about doing it together and couldn't end up like agreeing on terms. And I, I kind of told my dad, like, look, this is an industrial project. Like, what if I tried to do this myself and I'll just keep my day job at Stockbridge and, and maybe it can be some good kind of side income or mailbox money. And so I literally like right on at the spot, he was like, what would, you know, how would we do that? I'm like, well, let's just form something called Triton real estate partners. And like, you know, it can, again, it can be like the side hustle. And it started with one building, 30,000 feet. That was 2012. And so I just went to Stockbridge and said, Hey, do you mind if I do this? You know, I don't think it conflicts with any of our portfolio. They said, no problem. You know, long story short, that like two and a half years later, I kind of found land from the neighbor and it kind of ended up being a an aggregate play. And I kept kind of financially engineering it using the, the skills I had at Stockbridge and and would kind of come down and meet with architects and, and kind of, you know, fly by night type of stuff. And mm. before I knew it, I had a pretty substantial asset and I really enjoyed the, you know, putting the pieces together. And so I, at that point, said, look, I can use some of the the equity or value that we built up in this one property to to harvest some capital and see if I can't go, you know, become a developer operator type that that can maybe use the lens of of my private equity experience to to know what the institutions might want and and create a business out of it. So August of fourteen, you know, just over five years ago now, which is which is crazy, I jumped out and and kind of at that point went full time on on what was at the time, just kind of a side hustle. So you you started early and often, I would say, with Triton, and you kind of jumped in head first. And, I, and I'm curious what those first few years were like, because I believe, as you've told me in the past, is it wasn't only just the real estate side or the, the kind of the newer real estate partner side. You were also helping Triton Corporation during that transition. And so how did you balance those two sides of the of the business? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I didn't know that was the case when I was coming in. It was like I thought I was signing up just to do real estate, and I've just gotten a PhD the last five years about family business, which I not only did I not know anything about really in terms of the the nuts and bolts of it, but also I almost didn't have any desire. As you could tell by my track, I didn't want to come home. I, I wasn't interested in the type of business, and so you know, it kind of evolved. But when I joined, no matter what you do, if your quote name is on the door, or your family name is on the door, it's it's all linked. No matter how much you want to try and maybe delink it, mm-hmm. especially in the format we did it right with this kind of legacy land. And, and so when I started, I really was just focused on real estate. You know, as the, you know, I, I joined 2014, you know, by early 2015, the oil and gas market was, was taking this massive correction. And so that's when I, I, felt some need or obligation to help. And so that's when I started getting involved and trying to just, I also saw, right, some just, I would almost just say like antiquated, typical family business things where the processes and systems are were developed in, in my, the, the prime of my dad's career, right? Which is, and then that's the, the group of people he has around him. And so you have to always be thinking about next gen and succession planning and are we best in class you know on all of our ERP systems mm-hmm. and I was using some of that stuff and so just by virtue of using it and I, I was used to like you know everything best in class like working with super type A people and 
just this like go getter culture. And then, you know, you come into a family business that I wasn't sensing that as much. So that, that kind of dragged me into the family business. It was incredibly difficult to juggle starting a business and, and also help improve existing businesses. And so uh, it's been a, a, a super just evolving and, and interesting road. And, and now both of my other brothers are, are now in the business. And thank God, because, you know, there's such a huge body of work to do. And I've got, you know, the real estate has been growing throughout that. And so it's just been, you know, working with family. I mean, I've talked with, with Bryant about it, you know, a little bit too. It's just, it's a, it's a totally different dynamic. And I, I joke with my wife, it's like, you know, imagine the Thanksgiving table, <laughs> but then that's like a conference table. And, and the, and what you're discussing is not politics, but business issues, right? The emotions and the, the background at all, it's a totally different format. And so you have to really draw lines of, of respect and structure and governance and, and respect is, is probably paramount because the emotions are, are just more deeply rooted. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fun environment, but you have to make sure you structure it properly. And, and it's kind of, it's fun now that the three of us brothers are involved. And, you know, the one thing I can say about Triton, the broader Triton corporation is just like what the company looks like today is quite literally like zero overlap has zero overlap with what it was when it was started. And right. And so that's like, to me, like every business has to do that over time. I mean, if you just commit to always being Kodak and don't evolve to to technology or whatever, you have to be evolving with the world. So the one thing I would say we're, we're proud of is like, we're, we've always been fairly entrepreneurial as a, as a company and starting businesses that we think fit the the current needs of, of the world. And, and tr- obviously, real estate's kind of chief among that. So, like the Triton of today is is very different looking than the Triton of my my grandfather's mm-hmm. forming. And 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 if anything, like any successful business has to do that over time. I would love to take a look at some of your current projects. Over the last handful of years, there have been quite a few unique projects that you've released that you've worked on, and I think you use the term kind of barbelling in terms of the projects that you take on, especially earlier on where it's, you know, placemaking on some projects and maybe more industrial minded on others. And there are some projects that come to mind for me that you have worked on, uh, the MKT, Swift, Workshop. And I guess as we look at current projects, I want to I wanna hear from you what they're all about, why they're unique, and, and why you think they strike a chord with your, with your customers and tenants. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I, I, when I started Triton, it was like that industrial project. And industrial is a great business. It's obviously about as unsexy as it gets. It's it's just <laughs> four walls, a piece of concrete, and a bunch of inventory. And but it's it's got a from a fundamental standpoint, like this is where like the you know the more investor side of me comes out of like it's just fundamentally a great business. You can build it quicker. The projects are not as hard to put together. There's there's tailwinds for income growth and rent growth. And so when I first left Stockbridge, I was kind of like, "What am I going to, you know, do?" And 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 the idea was, I was just going to keep doing what I was doing in Stockbridge. I just had no money, and I needed to go raise third party capital. So our format is we go talk with institutions like USAA or a Carlisle, you know, some of the bigger institutional funds that that are similar, essentially mimic a Stockbridge, and then say, "Hey, we'll invest a you know skin in the game behind you or with you alongside you," and mm-hmm. and. And then we can go scale out and do larger projects, you know, instead of just me doing some small projects. And so 
at the first deal I bought, I mean, as I mentioned, Houston was kind of entering a downturn. So I said, I need to go focus on, on Dallas. And so I, I was, you know, flying up to Dallas, driving around and ended up finding this, this mixed use kind of interesting site. And that's kind of where my passion lies is, is, you know, trying to take something and completely reinvent it or rethink it and, or renovate it or, you know, do like an adaptive reuse of it. And so mm-hmm. at the same time, I was like, well, industrial is a really solid business. And so what came out of that over the years is, you know, bring in some folks that really can help grow the industrial business, which ended up being a buddy of mine from, from not only high school, but also college who never left. I mean, he came right back home to Houston and he's a, like an expert in industrial. And so the idea of what we are today is, is where I really spend my time in, is, is kind of on that placemaking or, or, or mixed use environments around, you know, can you buy an office building like in Dallas and take the parking lot and put a, a velvet taco with a plaza and maybe some beanbag throwing and, and a patio and a plaza that makes a different environment. And ironically, uh, in some ways, spending so much time in San Francisco and Chicago, I mean, after I sold that Tahoe, I didn't own a car for the next 10 years. And, and I was like an urbanite, you know, through and through and public transportation everywhere. And, you know, I really started to have that curiosity for that environment and that vibe. And I always would come back home and say, why don't we have anything, you know, that, that is like that? That's kind of quote cool and has a, a unique feel to it. And it's not just tearing down what was there and, and creating some new glass curtain wall. And mm-hmm. so that's what's kind of come out of that is, is what our portfolio looks like. I mean, and in Dallas, we had that deal, uh, the crossing, which was a 1970s office building and a parking lot. It was like, okay, let's add on to the existing garage and then free up that parking lot to, to put this kind of urban textured environment. And then in a weird way, our, our now kind of largest project, which is, is in the Heights in Houston, which is kind of like our, you know, West Loop, Chicago or Williamsburg, or it's just kind of more the, the creative class, if you mm-hmm. will. But that actually was a, a smashing of our two worlds where, where my industrial partner came in to my office one and said, you got to buy this thing and, and do something else with it. And then it was like, well, let me, let me take a look. And as I, I, you know, what I saw was five 1970s industrial buildings that aren't that interesting, but it's like, well, what if we created a, you know, 12 acre walkable environment with a mixture of office and restaurants and retail. And, and so that's kind of the barbell you mentioned. It's like, we still don't, ostracize that we still kind of pursue the the warehouse strategies and you know have done very well there and then at the same time we've got these kind of single rifle shot mixed use kind of destinations that we're trying to create between dallas and and houston Mm. and it's it sounds like you're seeing a lot of shift around expectations for tenants moving into spaces these days where it needs to be a mix of you know cool good atmosphere tech spaces, maybe even coffee shops or various amenities in and around the location. How has that impacted projects that you're working on today, in, including uh, MKT, which you're referring to now? Houston's a great like ground zero for, for the broader dynamic that's going on in the country within real estate, which you know people would say is because millennials are, are now coming into their own and, and their, their needs and wants are, are different. And it's all about you know, the experience. And at Houston right now, you know, we've got a, a pretty ugly office market fundamentally. I mean, large vacancy, a lot of sublease and, and companies trying to get rid of space. And the only thing that, that is leasing right now is, is something that's either new, unique, or different. And mm. 
fundamentals of, of statistics or data within the market would tell you not to build any office space right now. And MKT, which is, which has been a, a bit of a surprise even to us, you know, these old industrial buildings, it doesn't really even have an office submarket directly around it. I mean, there's not like competing office space. You'd have to go to adjacent submarkets like downtown or the Galleria. But because we're, we've got this like, what's perceived cool, unique, repurposing the buildings and kind of exposing the its industrial past and embracing it in some ways, refinishing it. And of course, we're, we're just under construction. But what we've seen is that even the more, quote, traditional oil and gas tenants that, that people would tell you would never want that space are highly interested in it. And it's kind of, you know, people our age, so to speak, or our generation are now coming into the, to the decision-making, you know, realm of, of being part of the company and executive or that is uh, maybe it's a young executive, but they now are saying like, Hey, this is what our employees want. And this is how we can compete and retain. And, you know, in the retail space, you know, same thing, right? I mean, you read the headlines and Amazon's taking over and e-commerce and, you know, everything's going online, but you're seeing a little bit of a shift of these direct, direct to consumer brands are still ending up opening, you know, storefronts and, mm-hmm. and you have to complement how that works. But, Maybe you shrink your inventory and, and your store size can shrink down a little bit and, and, and you're seeing kind of the depths of these stores shrink because there's no kind of inventory in the back anymore, right? It's just, we're going to put everything in the front and we'll mail it to you, kind of like the Bonobos, you know, format. Mm. And even like, you know, like a coffee concept, like we're not like going for the big names in the industry. We want like local boutique that'll create the right environment that, that people will say like, oh, this is a pretty interesting you know, mixed use community that, you know, you could work, it's a little bit of that live, work, play. And then of course the big piece of MKT is that we're right on a, a hike and bike trail. And so like Houston doesn't really have geographical advantages on land, like mountains or, or a beach, or, you know, we have these, these bayous that run through our city that are essentially drainage systems. And so we're kind of embracing the bike trail as like our local amenity and, and, that's been a, a rails to trails program that that again has been the community demanding that they, that we have some amenities like this that the cities embrace. So, you know, it's just all about trying to to create a a different something that isn't perceived as commodity. You know, it's not a strip center. It's but it's very hard to find, right? And it's 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 not like you can just you know go to any part of town and say, oh, we can do that right there. And so you have to have kind of like an aligning of stars to find find something that works. I'm curious if there's anything in, in particular about the Houston or Dallas markets that you've found that really play into your decisions around the type of development that you go after. And I, and I think you've mentioned maybe a few that relate to that, such as, you know, being a differentiator in the region, you know, not a lot of similar projects in the area, but what else are you seeing that kind of helps boost these projects' success? Yeah, I mean, it's just probably more of that same, like trying to do it a little bit different or, you know, for whatever reason, this is probably like not a good thing. We seem to take on projects that have like a ton of complexity and, you know, that might scare some other people away. And what's interesting about Texas really is it has so many, so much in migration from, from other cities in the U.S. because of the job growth. And you're seeing even in Houston now, I mean, it's such a different place from when I grew up. Everyone's I'd say like more than half the people I meet now, you know, socially are, are not from Houston, did not grow up here. And in many places are, are coming from these other urban cores, New York, mm. uh, Chicago, LA, or just other Midwest cities or Florida. And so they all see it, right? And they're like, 
you know, Houston's this like kind of sprawling LA, like in terms of it's just urban sprawl. And it's kind of like everyone is saying, why don't, why don't people bring some of these concepts or other real estate projects? And I'm not, it's not like I'm the Oracle here. Like there's plenty of other people now doing the same thing, but I just, if anything, I'm trying to copy some of the stuff that I've seen in West Loop Chicago or the mission in, in, in San Francisco, or just trying to put my lens on it. And so there's plenty of uh, other people that are in the exact same boat and and there's plenty of awesome projects across the state that are, that are doing the same thing. We're just trying to f- figure out how to, you know, how can we f- find something that uh, we think we can put our lens on or, or, you know, that we're not afraid of, of figuring out complexity of, of what are the, whatever the existing site might look like or the seller or, you know, some easements or what have you, or a lot of moving pieces, which is, I think where my background of just working in a lot of different product types. I mean, some of the norm in the industry is like you're, you know, an apartment developer or an office developer. And sometimes it's you're, you know, we can be our own worst enemy because we understand multiple things. But it's also, I think, where you're like on on workshop, right? I mean, if there's a movie theater, there's two office buildings, there's a this existing retail structure and a garage in the middle, and you know, people would typically say like, well, that you need to kind of parcel it off and sell it to an apartment guy or sell it to them. And we were like, we'll take the whole thing and we'll try to attack it from from like we're going to put the pieces together type of thing so mm. just trying to look at, at areas that we think we may not bump up against a ton of people but you know it's a competitive world no matter what yeah as, as we begin to wrap up scott i, I want to piggyback off of that that mindset and and hear your thoughts about future trends you know what do you think is really going to impact the market what do you think is going to be ongoing differentiation in the upcoming years, are there any things in particular that you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, generally speaking, the uh, there's kind of like a few things at play. One is on the ha- like the housing side, you know, in many ways, construction costs continue to go up, and you know, the, the, without getting like too finance geeky about it, but the the cost of capital has continually gone down, and because of the Great Recession, and you know, that's in some ways it's it's fueled like another asset inflation to some degree. And so in a lot of ways, housing is is, is still expensive, especially in urban cores. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I think you're starting to see things like micro units pop up or, or these apartment communities that have like little amenities to them to try and like transfer that cost to something else, right? Or just say, we'll, we'll pass it through to you on less rent. And then there's, you know, this, this single family like rental market of essentially the you know, when you go outside the urban core, it's like the affordability of a home and a down payment, you know, is more challenging because of the lending standards. And so maybe in some ways people build almost single family residential. And, you know, some of the bigger capital groups have actually gone through after the housing crisis and bought up all these homes, right? And and now they're renting them. And it's almost like this new multifamily sector, but it's not multi, it's almost single family. And so trying to watch that has is, is just been an interesting trend. And, and, and seeing what opportunity might come out of that. And there's also, you know, within the hospitality sector, we've been kind of tracking the fact that people are taking some of these same multifamily projects and, and saying, hey, we should do short-term rentals. And people are okay staying at these, what are effectively apartment buildings that are kind of like Airbnb, but with an operating platform behind them to stay. And, and you know, some very good friends and, and, and of mine are going into this business, but it's kind of like, can you take some of those units and rent them out for a night or two and, and, you know, use utilizing technology to do everything from have your Netflix set up when you show up to open the door and, 
you know, how you check in, check out. And, and so like, that's to me kind of an interesting trend. And then of course there's kind of where, which is probably a little bit more relevant to us is just the e-commerce retail industrial overlay. I mean, we had an interesting circumstance where one of the t- retail tenants at MKT was wanting space at MKT. And at the very same time, they wanted some of our industrial space. And it was literally like they were going to produce the goods in the industrial space and kind of house it there at, you know, call it $4 rent. And then they'll put the retail store much smaller, right, at MKT. And so just figuring out, like, how do you play into that? I still think there's a demand for retail and I still think there's a demand for a shopper's environment. You know, mm-hmm. statistically, e-commerce is still a low percentage of the overall retail spend and people want restaurants are driving a lot of it now. Restaurants used to be like not as uh, as popular. Now they're kind of the bell of the ball that drive the whole project. And so just figuring out, you know, where, where does that land you going forward? And, and um, you know, within the office space, there's obviously the whole co-working boom, which has been kind of called into question with the WeWork recent kind of debacle. And, and so work trends are, are uh, almost starting to get blended with hospitality trends where, you know, your office lobby might start is starting to look a little bit like a hotel lobby. What the amenity set it changes over time. And so anyways, those are just, it's me kind of like thinking out loud, but some of the things that we're constantly kind of tracking and, and, and looking at. Scott, thank you so much for your time today. I want to ask you one final question here. Uh, it's one of my favorite questions. And that is, you know, given all of your experience and, and given all of your history within the industry, I'm curious who you would tell me and the rest of the listeners to be paying attention to. That's also doing really, really cool, groundbreaking or inspiring work out there. Oh, wow. Um, you know, in Texas, I think there's some really talented guys that, I mean, one of which is, by the way, our partner at, at MKT, a guy named Steve Radome and Radome Capital. I think you guys might have met. He's got some incredible projects here locally in town, and we've collaborated on a, a couple times and, and, and just had a, a great time doing it. Others, Endeavor in Austin, I think, is doing some really cool projects that are going to translate well. I think as they continue expanding across the state, I've always been a huge fan of Sterling Bay uh, in Chicago. I think, you know, they obviously kind of pioneered the West loop and, and the, some of the adaptive reuse projects they've done mm. out there. So, I mean, I, those are kind of like a few names yeah. off the top. Of my head. Yeah, those are great. We'll, uh, we'll be sure to link those in the show notes. So, uh, so, so visitors and, and listeners can, can pop in and take a look and, there's only one more thing to do, Scott. It's uh, time to roll out the red carpet for you. Tell the world what you're up to, where they can find you online, and, and any other links that you want to share. Yeah, I mean, you can find our our company website. It's Triton R E T R I T N R E dot com. You know, obviously, you can you can find us on LinkedIn or on the web, and you know, the broader family business you'll you'll find through that as well. But you can reach out through the website. Um, happy to, to 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 talk with whoever and. Appreciate you even thinking this was worth the time, Chris. I, I hopefully people have some interest in hearing me blabber, but but uh, <laughs> you know hopefully there's something they glean from it. So appreciate you reaching out on it. Yeah, there absolutely is, uh, Scott. Thanks so much for your time today. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com/transformingcities. Or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.